One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem and from a coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who, are hung who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their, their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to who you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. Just pray for John as he comes to, um, as he comes to uh, open um, the word to us. Father God, thank you for, for Jonathan and for the preparation he's done. Lord, we pray that you would guide him uh, as he speaks to us. And Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hear what uh, you have to say to us today. Amen. So if you've got that passage um, handy, do open it. We're going to be looking at it. Um, but we're looking at the theme today of being a true disciple. Um, but before we get into it, I don't know if any of you have come across this particular individual, a guy called Andrew Tate. Um, now, the schools recently have got quite concerned with the influence of um, what Andrew Tate has been saying through social media. Now, if you've not heard of him or have no idea about why he's such a big thing, essentially for under 25s, um, TikTok is as mainstream for us as the six o'clock news. And this particular guy has had 12.7 billion views on TikTok of what he says. Now, there was a really interesting article this week on him. He's currently uh, on remand in Romania, uh, accused of sex trafficking. Um, but he's written a lot of quite influential things. And this article said, said, imagine you are a young man and the first time encountering Tate is not in a newspaper article like this, but rather in a YouTube video entitled Fix Your Mind, 
motivational speech. And in the video, Tate dishes out harsh truths about money, success and endeavour. And it's easy to see how it could inspire someone who feels powerless or confused about their place in the world. Tate says, you've got to play the cards you're dealt. If you're five foot two inches, you need to become strong, rich and charismatic. If you're six foot four inches, and I'm, I'm rather closer to this, then you need to become rich, strong and well connected. Take his TikTok's Tony Montana. First you get the money, then you get the power, then you get the woman. But the sad thing about Andrew Tate is that he is unapologetically a misogynist, using women for his own ends. But his, his baseless misogyny and me first, get yours narcissism is actually quite appealing to young men in particular today, where mainstream culture is telling them to check their privilege for reasons they don't quite understand. Now, why is the teachings of this individual so powerful, so alluring to the younger generation, particularly boys today? What he's doing is he's tapping into that one thing that all human beings crave, certainty and control over their own destiny. If you like, power over their own destiny. He talks about how if you break out of the system, you can have wealth, which means you can control things. Now, what's really interesting is we come to one of Jesus' most famous sermons today, and we contrast the teaching here in the world to one of the Son of God. And Jesus talks about blessings. I, I was um, very struck for the first time um, back in the 90s when I was on a university trip to Poland and we looked at the Beatitudes for the, um, really I'd studied them for the first time. Now the Beatitudes are Jebus's famous Sermon on the Mount where he talks about all the blessings and today's um, focus in today's passage is actually on a stripped down version of the Beatitudes where it's the Sermon on the Plain. Now what was really interesting is the work that we were doing out in Poland, the students, was working with mentally handicapped men in a Catholic nunnery. And whilst we were studying the Beatitudes, all around us were examples of people who had been rejected by the world. Uh, particularly in that society, they'd been pushed away into a home and, and had no value as far as that society was concerned. And yet, we learnt so much from working through those men in that home. Uh, there was one guy with muscular dystrophy who was one of the most patient teachers of language that I'd ever, I'd ever come across. There were some who had so much joy about them so that they would just fill a room when they walked into the room. And I think for us, we were all at Durham University, you know, all aspiring to get on in the world and progress. And we had this really humbling reminder of actually how God can bless in an amazing way, even if you don't measure up to the world's standards. Now, it's really interesting as we look at today's passage to hold a mirror up to what we're being told in society today about, well, how can you really attain true contentment and happiness? So, the background to today's passage. Well, as Adrian's been looking over the last few weeks, there have been a few encounters that Jesus has had with, it's fair to say, the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were the teachers of the law of the day, 
They were there for every Jewish boy aspired to be a Pharisee because they were the people with the control, with the power in that society. They were the system, if you like, in that society. Now, they got very upset with Jesus because Jesus, as far as they were concerned, was constantly breaking the rules. In fact, he constantly pushed out, outside the rules, and it really upset them. So back in 521, when Jesus is healing the paralytic, they say to him, you're saying you can forgive his sins, but only God can forgive his sins. Then they see him eating with a tax collector, the despised people in society, in chapter 5, verse 30. Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Then in chapter 6, we looked at this last week, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And then finally, when Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath, they are absolutely furious. And as Adrian said last week, this claim that Jesus makes, who I am, changes everything. Because Jesus claims to be God. And that completely changes, essentially, his audience and people hearing him. And Jesus turns on its head not only what you must do to be a true follower of God, but also challenges the world's notion of what you must do to be successful and fulfilled. Now, one of our key values here as a church that we talk about a lot is making disciples as disciples. In other words taking on one of the commands that Jesus gave us when we, he left the world, which he basically said, um, what your duty as a church is to teach people what I have taught you so that they can become followers of me. And this passage is squarely about what it means to be a true disciple of Jesus. And instead of following the promises of a TikTok influencer whose promises follow this formula, and you will be happy, wealthy, and powerful. Instead, we're invited here to follow the Son of God himself, who promises something much more profound and deep than that. A restored relationship with God, and a profound change on human beings that can bring about deep and profound happiness. We're going to see in this passage today what it takes to be a true disciple. What does it take to be a disciple of Jesus? How is our character, how should it be shaped as a disciple of Jesus? And then what impact should it have on our ministry to the world? Now this is a really early stage in the ministry of Jesus, but we're starting to see the key building blocks of his ministry emerge. How Jesus calls and teaches his followers is of crucial importance to us. So into the passage. What does it take, first of all? So we have Jesus calling the disciples. Now before he does that, have you noticed in the passage what Jesus does first? Verse 12. Jesus goes out to a mountainside to pray. And he spends the night in prayer with God. I think that's really profound, isn't it? Jesus, even though Jesus himself is the Son of God, he still needs to depend on God the Father. So he spends all night in prayer. And then after he spent all that time with God in prayer, he chooses these 12 disciples. Some years ago, I was having physiotherapy on a, on a knee injury that I'd got. 
And um, I'm not quite sure how it ended up this way, but I ended up getting physiotherapy from none other than one of the physiotherapists for the esteemed football club, Birmingham City. And um, I had some quite interesting conversations with him about um, what it was like actually to work at a football club. And he said, one of the things that really strikes you when you walk into a football club is actually how young the players are. He said, they're essentially boys. And he said, you, and you go around and you tell them what to do and they sort of, it's almost like teaching at school. And what's really interesting about these disciples that Jesus chooses is that actually relatively how young they were and how uneducated they were as well. They were probably no more than between the ages of 18 and 23. That some of them were fishermen, some of them were tax collectors. They were not people who were of any great note in that society. And yet Jesus calls these unremarkable 12 to him. And he knows that he'll be able to shape them as his followers. The term disciple actually means a follower, a student, or a learner. It's a, it's a normal status of those who follow Jesus Christ. But notice how Jesus gives them special status as well. He calls them to be his apostles. Now, the word apostle means messenger or envoy. They're effectively going to carry his message forward for him. Because Jesus knows that these 12 men or as it, as it turns out, 11, are going to be critical in taking on his ministry after he's departed the world. In fact, and he knows that they're not going to be perfect. At least one will deny him. The majority will actually go into hiding as soon as Jesus um, is on the cross. And one will certainly betray him. And we see that in verse 16. Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. But it's on these 11 that the early church is going to be built. I find it really interesting how, um, how countries are, run themselves. I don't know if you know about France, but in France they, um, they have a big thing about they choose the very brightest and best in society. They send them off to the very best universities, and they're the people who end up running the country in France. It used to be the way that the British ran their, their empire as well. They would send out the very, very best to do that. I don't think they do that anymore. Um, but... What's interesting is then you think, well, if you're going off to take on the world, if you're going to take on this message around the world, surely you want the brightest and the best people possible to do it. Well, Jesus turns that on its head. He said, I'll take a group of young men with no qualifications and I will make them the leaders of the early church. That's a pretty remarkable thing that Jesus is able to do in the three years that he has with them. In fact, the, 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 the writer Oswald Chambers put it this way. He says, God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because of their unusual dependence on him made possible the unique display of God's power and grace. He chooses and uses somebodies only when they renounce their dependence on their natural abilities and resources. Now, you need to decide whether you're a nobody or a somebody. I mean, if, if you're a nobody, you've actually got an advantage because you, you, you have nothing, so you have to completely depend on God. There is no other choice. But if you're a somebody, it's actually harder because you actively have to choose to renounce your natural abilities and resources and depend on God. And the truth is, in a church like ours, 
where people are, do have lots of natural abilities. We've, got, we've had more PhDs in the church than any other church I've been part of. People are very skilled in, in, a, in a worldly way. We've got money, we've got power, we've got influence, but God can only truly use us when we depend on him rather than ourselves. And that's a real challenge to us as a church. We're busy, we're time poor, we're self-dependent, and we're proud. I think if we look at all ourselves and examine ourselves, we probably don't depend on him enough. But the thing is, we can help each other to become more like him and grow in dependence on him. We can encourage each other to study his word in our home groups. We can encourage each other with testimony about how he's worked in our lives. We can be open with each other about our struggles and how we can depend on him more. We can turn to him in prayer. We can go to prayer meetings and encourage each other. What God wants is our dependence on him in the same way that those first disciples showed their dependence on Jesus. So the focus of the passage now moves from the calling of the disciples to the sermon on the plain. You see in verse 17, he went down with them and stood on a level place. And we look into how, how this shapes character. There's a really interesting statistic that I was told um, a few years ago that has all stayed with me by um, John Stevens, who's head of the FIEC. And from their own surveys, they found that the gospel, in terms of people actually coming to profess a faith in Jesus, was at the most profound at two levels of society. At one level, it was actually most profound amongst the poorest in society. They found that there were people who were from the lowest social demographic were turning to Jesus more than from almost any other area of society. That was really interesting. But can you guess what the other area of society where they were seeing the most people turning to Jesus? Yeah, it was amongst the very richest in society. And what was really interesting about that was people had got to the very top and realised it was empty. And actually that had created an awakening amongst people, and particularly through the ministries of certain churches in London. They were finding that people were turning to Jesus at that point. And as we come to the Sermon on the Plain, we should keep in mind here the tension that exists between what the world considers to be the ultimate achievement, enjoying power, wealth and success, against what Jesus is teaching here about what it means to be true, a true success, if you like, in the eyes of God. What a challenge, what a contrast here. So the Sermon on the Plain. So notice how those who go down to the plain, it's a large crowd of disciples, so those who are Jesus' followers, but also there's a great number of people from all over Judea, from Jerusalem, from the coastal regions. And what's important about all these people is they had come to hear Jesus and also uh, to be healed. It's not the Sermon on the Mount, it's clear, it's a sermon from a flatter place, the plain. Um, and, and you see Jesus actually preaching what is possibly a reduced version of the Sermon on the Mount, or it, it's one for a slightly different audience, but the themes are similar. And Jesus starts with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. 
because people are healed of their diseases. And those who are troubled by impure spirits are cured. People tried to touch Jesus, but because the power that was coming from Jesus was so great, there was tremendous amounts of healing that was going on. Jesus, who'd been in communion with his Father all night through prayer, was exuding the power of the Holy Spirit. But this is clearly an occasion where Jesus is teaching his followers. And it's really interesting how people are there because they want to hear the words of Jesus. This teaching is aimed at challenging the hearts of those who are already followers of Christ or want to be followers of Christ. This is not a series of rules for unbelievers. This is a direct challenge of to the heart of those who claim to be believers. In many ways, it's not dissimilar to those of us who are here gathered today. And the central question that Jesus seeks to answer in this passage is how can you have a true, deep, and long-lasting assuredness of your position with God? What is the key to developing tr true godly character? Now, this sounds to me like this could be the prelude to the world's best ever TED talk, or perhaps the best ever motivational video. This is being promised here, long-lasting assuredness of your destiny on how your character can be developed to be more like God himself. I mean, surely this is the best self-help video on the entire planet. But gee, what Jesus does is he turns all that on its head. Because Jesus says, if you are poor, yours is none other than the kingdom of God. Now, being physically poor in and of itself does not present you with the kingdom of God. However, if you believe and trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, so that your dependence on him is total, then yours is the kingdom of God. It's realising, actually, it's a spiritual poverty, that you have nothing at all, and you absolutely need God. Jesus then goes on to say that if you are hung, if you are hunger now, you will be satisfied. And that's profound. It's not talking particularly about physical hunger. It's talking about spiritual hunger. There's an interesting connection. Adrian talked last week about fasting. And I've only fasted once or twice in my life. Um, one of the advantages of it, I would say, is that when you deprive yourself of food for a period of time, there is definitely a greater alertness of the senses. And anyone's ever done this, you'll realise that. And I, I, I do think that's a reason as to why fasting is a good practice to do if you can. Because actually it actually does make you more aware in, in, in many ways. So the, the, there's, there's arguably a connection between physical hunger and spiritual hunger. But what Jesus is talking about here is that this real hunger to know God more. And Jesus' promise, if you do that, then you will be satisfied. Jesus then goes on to say that if you weep now, you are blessed. There is a promise of laughter. On a spiritual level, this is a profound awareness of your own sinfulness. If you lament your own sinfulness and are convicted by God, he can do amazing things. But we all know on a practical level that profound affliction in life and hardship often actually produces two outcomes in human beings. It can, it can produce anger against God. against your, I was only talking to somebody this week who's, who had lost their brother 
who was at the funeral this week of their brother and, had, and had, the week before lost their best friend. And her response to me was, thank you, God. She was broken by her grief and was raging against God in that situation. But then I've known other people as well who have suffered great grief and yet they found that their relationship with God is the thing that has carried them through. And that's what Jesus is talking about here. If you weep and you're aware that actually you need to depend on God, he will promise you laughter in the future. And then finally, the, the, the one that um, probably we can most relate to is this one of direct persecution. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. In other words, because of Jesus. Jesus assures his listeners that actually what's being experienced here is nothing other than what the prophets themselves experienced. But he promises them a reward in heaven for enduring that. And I think that's a challenge to each one of us because actually we all want to fit in in life, don't we? We all want people to like us and to just feel that, you know, we're getting on in society. But actually the reality is if we hold ourselves out as Christians, then people will feel that we are judging them. And the temptation is just basically to say nothing and to reap a quiet life. I don't know if you notice the theme that goes through all of those things, through all of those four beatitudes or blessings. That basically if you depend on God, then God will bless you. If you depend on him, and in these areas where it's most evident, wealth, hunger, grief, standing up for Jesus in the face of hostility then God will ultimately promise a blessing to those who trust in him. Now Jesus then moves on to the flip side of these. And his use of language here is very interesting because I'll be honest with you, when I've read this before um, and I read the word woe, I almost sense that it's a word of judgment on people. But that's actually not what it means here. Because... All too often, we like to pitch ourselves of us against the world. Our, ba our battle is with, the, with those who don't know Jesus. But actually, the languages of Jesus here, it's a word of lament, of sorrow, of great sadness. It's breaking his heart that people are like this. Jesus looks at the opposite of what he has said, providing blessing. And he, and he says... Woe to you if you are rich, because you have already received your comfort. And the truth is that being rich will undoubtedly provide comfort in this life. But it's only in this life. It's only temporary. Then he says, woe to you if you're full, because there will be a time when you won't be full anymore. Being full and well fed is a temporary status. Thirdly, he says, woe if you laugh now. And we need to be careful about the translation here. Jesus isn't saying that laughter is a bad thing. Absolutely not. There's more humour in the Bible often than we care to imagine. It's not against fun and happiness. No, in this context, Jesus is saying, woe to you who laugh. Actually, it's, it's a concept of sneering laughter. When you look down on people and you, and you laugh and think you're superior to them because you've got it worked out. He's saying that if you, if you behave that way, you will mourn and weep. 
And then finally he says, woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. If you're well liked by everyone, something may have gone wrong. He said, you're little better than the false prophets of old. And what do the false prophets of old do? They told people what they wanted to hear so that they would be popular. Don't be like that, Jesus says. Because so often the temptation is to tell people what they want to hear, to change the gospel, to change the truths, to make ourselves fit in. But Jesus says, woe to you if you're like that. And the thread that runs through all this is that the life of someone who is rich, at least in the eyes of the world, well-fed, comfortable to be in the right against Christians, willing to flex their moral position to ensure that the world is on, is on their side, they may well be fine in this life. Indeed, if their life is built on these things, when they depend on themselves rather than God, that may well be the outcome. They mock those who depend on God. Winning favour with men is more important than winning favour with God. And life has been good. But the trouble is, this culture of not depending on God will ultimately prove to be fatal. Because all of this comfort and self-sufficiency will be lost when they lose their lives. Jesus is almost saying that, okay, if that's what you want, you can have it, but it will be a temporary situation. Jesus has every right to be angry or bitter or frustrated with this attitude, but he isn't. Because Jesus loves people. Jesus has compassion for people in this situation. And he's deeply saddened by what he sees here. He knows that the greatest possible satisfaction that can be had in life is to know him. To be a child of God. And I I honestly think that's one of the reasons why we see this move perhaps amongst the very richest in society to come to know Jesus. Because they get to the top in human terms and they realise that money can buy you an awful lot of things in life but it cannot buy you eternal happiness. It cannot buy you that eternal assurance of knowing that you're a child of God and that you are forgiven and that you don't need to depend on yourself. In fact, don't depend on yourself, but you can depend on God himself. And and the sadness is all those who are in between, who are climbing up the ladder, who think if I get to the top, then everything will be fine, are deluded. They think that happiness is just a few rungs away. I get to the top and I'll be truly content. No, it's emptiness. It's a lie. The point is that only true contentedness is somebody who knows their utter dependence on Jesus. So what is the impact of this on our lives? What is the impact of being a true disciple? Because actually, if we really take this to heart, that actually I am spiritually bankrupt, I've got nothing at all, I cannot get to God myself, I totally need his grace. I desperately need God in a way that a starving person desperately needs to eat. I'm totally convicted by my own sinfulness to the extent that I am actually grief-stricken. I realise that I'm just wretched before God. (coughs) And I'm prepared to endure mockery and, and insults for Jesus Christ. Now, if we put all those things up there, that's a pretty miserable state of affairs, isn't it? But actually... It's that attitude that we need to get to, to realise total dependence on God. Because once we get to that point, 
and we come on our knees before God, that can be absolutely transformative. Because as Jesus promises here, if you come with that attitude of bowed down in total and utter dependence on him, if you're spiritually poor, hungry, weeping and prepared to die for him, God will do wonderful things in your life. That, 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 is, that is a promise. It's not going to be an easy life at all. It's not promised at all. But you will know that assurance that you're a child of him. We, we, I suspect all of us know people <coughs> who've made actual real sacrifices in their own lives. So they sort of turn their back on a comfortable life and take on a life of more hardship. We've, we've talked about um, the missionary couple who are going off, we're supporting as a church, who are going off to the Middle East. Now, both of them have been in good, affluent lives, but they've chosen to go and do that and endure some hardship. And that's tremendously, that's tremendously powerful. Anna's father decided, after he became a Christian in his late 40s, that he was going to go and give up his own business and go and study to become a vicar. And um, as Anna will testify, that the family had to endure um, quite a reversal of their fortunes in terms of um, how wealthy they were as a family and, that, and the hardship that that brought. And there were people at the time who did not understand why he was doing that, why he was willing to essentially give up quite a comfortable lifestyle to essentially go and minister to people. But it's because he knew the transforming effect on his life of these truths. He knew that actually we're, talk we're talking in eternity here and actually giving up some material comforts in this life is actually some, it's a minor thing to do in many ways. But I think on, 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 a, on a different level, for those of us who perhaps aren't engaged in full-time Christian ministry, let's think of our attitude with our own money, our own resources. How can we use those in an effective way that is sacrificial? Um, for, for, for all of you who've chosen to come and make this your home as a church, when actually you could have gone to a much bigger church with much bigger resources, the fact you've chosen to come here is a fantastic thing. Um, and it's that dependence on God in our lives is what Jesus is talking about here. Because ca our characters will be shaped by knowing bowed down dependence on God. And humble dependence on him is the absolute basis of effective Christian ministry wherever we go. We're talking here about sacrifice. But sacrifice in a way that God will use people who depend on him. Now, I, I close today by saying, are, are you following the philosophies of the world? that says, you do this, you do this, you do this, and you will achieve success in this life? Or are you looking at what Jesus Christ says, which he says, depend totally on me, and I will promise you eternal life. Come to me as a broken person, accepting that you have nothing, and I will promise you eternal life. That's our message to the world. And that's the message for anyone here today who doesn't know that truth. And if you want to come and pray and say, I want to follow Jesus, come and talk to me at the end and I'll pray with you. I'd love to do that.
But for all the rest of us who know Jesus, here is such a challenge in today's passage of what it means to be a true child of God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the fact that you preached this sermon 2,000 years ago to, to your followers. And it was, these words are so profound of what it means to be a child of you. And on the face of it, in human terms, it doesn't look that attractive. We're honest with you. Sacrifice is not always an attractive thing. But actually, we pray for all of us that you'd make us realise that actually we are totally in need of you in our lives. We can't depend on our comfort that the world gives us because it's a temporary thing. And we pray that you'd make us all want to depend on you more and more. And pray as well in our, in, in our message that we would have the compassion that you showed to people who didn't get this. And how you lamented and were sorrowful and wanted them to come to know you. And we pray in our own ministry, in our own evangelism, in our own speaking, that we would have that same level of compassion. But you would help us to point people towards you and show that eternal happiness can only be gained through a relationship with the living God. Pray that you'd help and equip us through your Holy Spirit to do this. Amen.